The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 70 of The Things We All Carry. I'm recording this introduction on the 4th of July. My hope is that you spent the day celebrating our country and all that is right about it. But I also hope you took some time to reflect on the changes we need to make. The preamble to the Constitution lays it out perfectly. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We as a country have work to do on that path towards a more perfect union. The health and welfare of a citizenry should be first and foremost in the attention of the most prosperous country in the world. Healthcare, the mental health crisis, education, elderly care, a living wage, the income gap and disparity, overcrowded prisons due to archaic laws, the list goes on. We put our trust in politicians and then don't hold them responsible when they choose personal gain over our interests. We hold ourselves ignorant rather than thinking and studying issues when the time comes to choose leaders. We give up freedoms and liberty in the guise of protection. Then bolstered by the hyperbole of a political party, we blame a neighbor who doesn't look or think like we do. We fall for the rhetoric that strengthens this conflict within our borders, allowing the government to run unchecked. For decades now, justice, tranquility, a common defense, welfare, and liberty have been eroded by bad actors and malfeasance. I think once we decide to act as we the people again, we can start to affect change and growth in this more perfect union of ours. Learn what politicians stand for. Hold them accountable. Seek out your neighbor. Learn to have a conversation. Learn that the majority of a conversation is listening. Find that vast middle ground that has been declared no man's land and stop living on the extreme fringes. Fight for a common good and our posterity. One of the disturbing topics that Robbie and I discuss in this episode is how the insurance company is able to both deny his diagnosis with PTSD and then deny his application for life insurance based upon his diagnosis of PTSD. You know, that diagnosis they denied he had in the first place? This is but one example of how corporations treat individuals and are free to do as they please. Robbie's story should be alarming to all of us. The poor state of mental health awareness and care in our country is disturbing. It affects our country at a basal level, which leads to a very universal effect. The state of our mental health care can be seen in our addiction rates, gun violence, homelessness, prison overcrowding, and so on. This conversation needs to be had and changes must be made. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. Today I'm joined by Robbie from Tennessee. Robbie reached out to me after I put out an initial call for people interested in telling their stories. We played phone tag for a couple of months, and we finally got the chance to sit and record. When I first spoke to Robbie, I found myself confused. My simple mind assumed if I was speaking to someone from Tennessee, expect a southern accent. Imagine my surprise when some dude sounding like a surfer from Cali came on the line. We discussed his decision to move his family from California to Tennessee, some of his trauma, his therapy, and the strides he has made. A quick reminder to help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry 
or email mystory at thethingsweallcarry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. How you got into the fire service, what your childhood and family life was like, and then we can get into the just the bones of it, if you're good with that. Cool. Yep, sounds good. All right, I'll uh, try not to destroy an introduction because I do it every goddamn time, it seems, but <laughs> if you're ready, we can get started. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so sitting down with us today is Robbie. He's from Nashville by way of California. He's a 10 years in the fire service, and he's a paramedic. First five of his career was spent as a firefighter EMT, and the last five has been as a paramedic. He's married with one kid, and he is here to talk about his story, so I'm going to let him get started with his family history, and then we'll get into his, fa- his fire history. How you doing, Robbie? Oh, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so a little bit about myself. Like you said, I spent the first five years in the service as a firefighter EMT. Did a few seasons with the Forest Service and worked part-time on the ambulance for the fire department. I did the fire academy through the junior college and then have done another academy once I got hired with the city. And so, yeah, I've worked a little bit of everywhere from like the rural metro areas and more out in the country a little bit. And then the last handful of years was spent in the city that I grew up in, actually. Yeah, it's been an interesting experience, but I'm pretty happy to be here and be able to share my experience. So what was what was family life like growing up? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I guess I'm bad at introduction. No, you're fine. That's why I'm here to ask questions. <laughs> yeah, family life for me. My parents had split, but my mom worked like 15-hour days as a real estate agent. She ran her own real estate company. And I'm the oldest of the siblings. So I spent a lot of time like taking my siblings to school and practices and helping make meals and clean around the house, stuff like that. But yeah, it was, I guess, not maybe a traditional upbringing, but I felt like I had a pretty good home life and family life for the most part. And my family's pretty like emotionally stable and whatnot. Growing up, there wasn't like huge knockdown, drag out fights or anything like that. And my parents weren't fighting each other and ended up in police cars or anything crazy like that. It was pretty stable. And I never even considered mental health when I was a kid. And I'd never even, nobody talked about it. Nobody knew anything about it. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that I realized like, it's not just crazy people that have mental health issues. Or maybe better so, say we're all a little crazy. Absolutely. That is definitely a better way to put it. Everybody's got something that they're dealing with for sure. So what brought you to Tennessee then? California has become fairly tumultuous in the last few years. And a lot of people are leaving. We call it like the opposite of the gold rush days where everybody's trying to come out more to the Midwest and to back East to try to grab up some land while they can, while land is a little cheaper here. We just saw an opportunity to leave. And so we left our dream home. And we said, Hey, the worst thing that's going to happen is we hate it out there and we come back. So I was going to ask you how tough that decision was. Cause I know you, you talked about your crew with me the other day when we spoke. Oh, yeah. Man, the, I knew it was going to be tough leaving those guys and the station that I worked in for the last year or so, I learned more working downtown with the senior guys than I did in the last probably in the previous five years that I worked in the fire service. They talk about guys that have got 10 years in, do you have 10 years of experience or do you have 10 years of the same experience? Right. 
you know, you could get put at a house on the outskirts of the city or whatever, and you never put yourself through hazmat or you never put yourself in an uncomfortable position where you really have to work hard and you're just like learning new stuff every day. And I put myself in that position where I knew I was going to be uncomfortable for a while. And, uh, but man, those guys took me in and we became very good friends. In fact, my skipper just that his family every year, they take a month or two off and they drag their ships row around the country and they stopped in Nashville just to spend a day with us. And that was awesome, man. And so we've become that close and I still am talking to all those guys on a regular basis. And it was, we got to the point where we were all hanging out, going and getting some drinks and playing, play golf and don't go and doing a lot of duck hunting and, and bird hunting and turkey hunting and stuff like that with each other. And so it was like, we actually had that kind of like TV fire service crew you see, and man, to leave those guys behind was huge, man. And I, it really hit me a month or two in once we were here and I was like, man, I left my, not just my job, but I left the boys and not having that anymore has been definitely difficult to deal with. That's been a, way harder than I thought it would. Even all our wives got along and stuff for the most part too, which is so hard to get like eight dudes together that get along pretty well, but then get eight women together also. And then it's all the kids got together. We were doing Thanksgiving and stuff together. It's really tough to make adult friends. And you're like, oh, your kids are 10 years older than my kids. We're not going to do the same stuff or whatever. It's, that was tough, man. It's, those guys have really, I've relied heavily on them still moving out here for their encouragement, honestly. It's good to have that to fall back on at least, but I understand that day-to-day -day part you miss. Yeah, for sure. Have you found so, a way to replace that in Tennessee yet? I think the I think the people at my new job, they've all got similar mindsets that I do. And everybody, like you and I have talked about off the recording, everybody's been really welcoming. They talked about, oh, we're so family oriented. And I was like, yeah, we'll see. They actually have been. Uh, and everybody's been really like open to helping me learn some new things and whatnot. So I think we'll end up hanging out with a handful of those people. And then I put myself out there to some of the other people in the neighborhood and stuff. That I'm just, I'm just taking my boy around, walking around the neighborhood, seeing like, where's the young couples at? Who wants to hang out? So I've made a couple of friends so far too. It's really hard to not set the same expectations of, okay, we lived in this other place for 30 years. So of course we have friends that are close and whatnot. So you can't, you just can't set that same expectation. You're just not going to have that right away. No, it's definitely going to take time. Yeah. All right. So what's your fire service career been like? It's been very interesting. I remember like every other young fireman getting out of the academy, just being just hardcore gung-ho. And I was about 22. And my initial career choice was to go into some kind of like sports medicine or into like youth services where I was going to be like working for churches or something like that. And Long story short, that just changed and I'd always wanted to be a firefighter. I'm like, I'm going to go to EMT school. Okay. I did that. That's pretty cool. And then, man, as soon as I hit the fire academy, I'm like, this is it. I'm doing this for sure. And so I remember getting out and going and doing an internship. And in California, you're required to do a paid internship for six months on a, as a full-time firefighter or be a volunteer for a year to get your firefighter one after you do an academy. And so I got a paid internship. I did that for six months and you act as the third man on the engine. So you are a firefighter the day you show up to work. 
and you're expected to be able to do the job the day you show up to work. And so I did that and man, right away, like you and I talked about like days into that, we got multiple structure fires and then I had my first victim in a fire. And, and that's the first like big decision I remember having to make where I'm pulling a pre-connect, the skipper's doing a size up and, and this guy comes out of a room with his clothes all melted to him, to his arms and legs and his face is all burnt up and hands are all burnt up and charred and everything. And the room he was in, it just flashed. And so it was hot in there and he came out and had just been on fire. And it's interesting because you do EMT and then you do fire and it's difficult to merge the two sometimes. And so I'm like, shoot, we didn't really talk about this. If I get to a structure fire and this guy's on fire, do I go put the fire out or do I do patient care? And so that was like the first, like really big decision I remember having to make. And luckily the guys I was with, I was like, okay, I feel like I should probably help the person. And so, plus we could confirm there was nobody else inside, stuff like that. That was pretty wild. That was my introduction, like my first month into the fire service. And then after that, it slowly dwindled to more, just a lot of medical aids and stuff like that. And lots of training to be ready for the, the next set of fires and whatnot. And, and then I, like I said, I did the forest service thing for a little while. And a lot of the guys there, they were awesome, but they were like, Hey dude, like you, you probably don't want to do this for the next 30 years. If I would have known now 20 years in, and now they're a captain with the feds, what I know what I knew, if I knew that 20 years ago, I would have probably gone to paramedic school. I would have gotten a job in the city. Okay. So these are guys that I would look up to. Wow. These guys are great firemen. I'm like, these guys are telling me to not do this job anymore. I should probably listen to them. So that's when I went to medic school and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get a job in the city. So I worked as a medic for the fire department for a few years for a small fire department. Learned a ton there, made a lot of really great, long lasting friends. I did my internship and everything up there. And, and then that really prepared me to go to the city. I feel like, because I, we really had to be a thinking paramedic. It wasn't like a two or three minute transport to a level one trauma center or anything like that. It was like, okay, how far are we? Where are we? We're in between hospitals. There was all just very dynamic. And so as a new paramedic to just get thrown into that was terrifying at the time, but the, probably the best thing that could happen. Plus I got to drive and pump a ton. And so when I went to the city, I already knew a lot about driving and pumping and I was comfortable with doing that. And so, yeah, that was great. And then, like I said, man, when I got to the city, I was just so happy to be there and finally be making some good money and everything. And, and then I get on probation and I'm like, okay, I'm on probation again. And now I'm now it's completely different than when I started right now. I'm 30, almost 30 years old. I've got a wife. My, we're talking about having kids and everything. And I'm just so happy to be there. And I've already been a paramedic for a couple of years, been on the line for a handful of years. I feel good. Not overconfident, but confident enough that I'm going to do fine on probation. And, and then I have this captain and he just loved make my life miserable. He was so good at it. And, and I didn't really know why for a long time. I'm like, what is this guy's deal, man? Like I'm literally doing everything he asks exactly how he asked me to do it. And uh, so I tried really hard to not butt heads with him and just be super respectful and everything. And, and I did, and I lasted the four months or whatever that I had with him and it sucked, but I was glad to have done that first at least and get that out of the way. 
And then my next few assignments were much better. And then I did my truck training and that was the only time I'd ever had any experience working on a ladder truck. And, and that was pretty tough too. And I was working in a house where I didn't know, I had never met any of the guys hardly. Like never spent any time with them off duty, nothing. I was total strangers to all of them. And that's when my PTSD stuff kicked in. And so- Hey, really That's quick, I, before we get into yeah, that, let me ask you a question about yeah. that first fire with the gentleman who was on fire. Oh, yeah, And absolutely. you had to decide whether to treat or be the nozzleman at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> what At what point was that discussed? What How did you guys handle that as a crew? Uh, so I had a, I actually had a lieutenant and a captain. That, no, I had two lieutenants working with me that day, which is always fun to have two officers on the same truck. And uh, one one guy came up and the other was doing his in on the west coast we do a 360 on residential fires and whatnot and so he was walking around and he was on the back side of the house never saw the guy and so i had to go over i said sir there's a man that just came out of the building he's on fire <laughs> or was on fire and he said well is he still on fire i said no he goes grab the medical bag and go do something about it you're an emt and so that was essentially how the decision was made was the typical fire service. What are you talking to me for? And that was it really. And then we talked about it later as a crew and stuff. And he's, so you really weren't a hundred percent sure what to do. And I was like, I'll be honest with you, sir. I was not. I said, cause everybody always talks about getting first water on the fire. And if you can, we weren't sure if there was anybody else in the building yet, all this different stuff. And I just really didn't have the skills yet to decide. Like there was so much stuff they teach you in the fire academy about all these prior priorities and scene priorities. And now I can make that decision all day long because I've got more proverbial slides in the tool tray, so to speak, where I'm like, okay, yeah, I've got all these other calls I've been on now that will help me make decisions. So even if it's not the exact same situation, I've at least had some kind of situation similar to it. But up until that point, I'd only been there for a month, maybe. And just never really been in a situation where I had to do something right now where this person was going to get worse or die or whatever. Up until then, it had been just your basic medical aids where you just, you drive code three to it. And then they add a stub toe for three weeks or whatever. And it's that, this is not what I thought it was going to be. So yeah, we had some fires and stuff, but it was always just being told what to do up until that point. And uh, that's when I realized how important it was to be able to really think for myself because it was a very real possibility I was going to be by myself again and have to have to figure, have to make another decision. And so you treat him and the call Absolutely. goes, the call goes yeah. on. You guys go back to the firehouse. Is there a discussion about the situation after that? Is there a debrief? Is there a lack of a better word, a hot wash? All we did was just talk about the call. There was no, it was. I never, I don't remember anything about, is anybody cool or is anybody like feel a certain way about that call or anything? It was just like, we joked about it a little bit because there were some funny things that happened during that call because some of the things that the patient said, like at one point the phone rang in, if that was like an apartment on the main house. And so we were able to extinguish the fire in the apartment. And then we brought him into the main house to treat because we were waiting a long time for an ambulance to get there because of the location we were in. And it was like 15, 20 degrees outside. We were going to strip him and flip him and all that stuff. And we wanted a warm area to do it. So 
we brought him into the main house and the phone rang and he like starts yelling at his mom to answer the phone. So it was like, we were just, that was all it was. We laughed about it later. It, there was no real like processing it or I wasn't like, okay, I need to go to my therapist now and I need to talk to him about this person that I just saw that was on fire. It was just like, whoa, that was fucking crazy. And then that was it. We never, that was it. And that's where I was curious if there was any processing on that or any other, yeah, calls yeah, of significance until, you know, at least. At that point, I had definitely never heard of like, I'd maybe heard of PTSD, but I always thought that was more like a military thing or we had never heard of like critical incident stress debriefings or anything like that. And if those guys knew about it, they certainly weren't asking for it or feeling the need to do it at all. So that brings us back to what you were going to talk about was the, with the PTS, you were saying that's, there came a time when you discovered that was part of what you were experiencing. Yeah. Like you and I have talked about before, sometimes it feels silly because a lot of the guys that you've interviewed have had these near death experiences or they were alcoholics or drug addicts or something overtook their life. However, I don't have that, but I feel like where I was, a lot of guys could be or are already there and like myself, just don't recognize it. And so if I can get my story out a little bit to, and some guys can hear it and be like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I am needing to handle this situation differently. And maybe then that can keep some other guys from having to go to rehab or whatever. So yeah, we... Like I said, I was working at that bigger house, a dual company house. We had an engine truck and a cross-staffed rescue between the engine and the truck. And I wasn't friends with any of those guys. I didn't have anybody to talk to really. I just was the low man on the totem pole and I was trying to mind my P's and Q's and rush to the phone and be in my uniform every day, all that type of stuff, even though I wasn't on probation or anything. But we had just had a kid, our first kid and only kid. COVID hit a month later, and then it just hit the fan after that. You always think, oh yeah, we're going to have our kid. We're going to have all our like friends and family around and it'll be great. It'll be totally fine. But then they do all these lockdowns and all this crazy stuff, which at the time we were just like, we were like, yeah, of course we're going to do this. They're telling us that we're all going to die from this. We should probably keep our one month old baby safe from this deadly disease. And my kid was colicky. He never slept, which means we didn't never sleep. Also, it was our first kid, so we had absolutely no idea what we we're doing. And then probably the worst part, man, was I was going to work still, right? Because we all were just going to work because that's what we signed up to do, even though there was this crazy thing out there that might kill us all and we might bring it home to our families and everything. And, and, but man, when I would leave, my wife was really alone. And so her postpartum stress disorder was crazy, like really bad. And so I remember just getting home after a tour and we worked 48 and oftentimes 72s and that's two or three days away a hundred percent of the time. And they're not allowing family to the stations, none of this stuff at this time. And so she's just in the house by herself with this crying baby for two or three days at a time. I remember just coming home and. She, no words were spoken. She would just hand me the baby and go take a shower and go try to go to sleep. And that'd be it. That was like our interaction during that time for a while. And I'm broke off. I've been throwing ladders all day, training hard every day because I'm the young man on the totem pole. These guys are going to see if I'm going to break. So we're throwing 35s and 28s and 24s and pulling hose and 
let's just go into calls too. I'm totally broke off, but so is she just in a different way. And so then I'm doing all that, not sleeping at home, not sleeping at work, getting hazed super hard at work by probably more like one guy in particular, really. And, uh, it was just all senior guys. So that was what they'd always done to the new guys that come in to do truck training and rescue training was they're just going to haze the crap out of us and see who who they think is worthy of being a truckie. But probably the first sign looking back that I was having some sort of mental issue or mental health issue was my attitude. And I'd always, that my nickname had been Smiley at places that I worked because even if we were just getting hammered at work, I'd just put a smile on my face or we'd be like middle of the night, like eighth call after midnight or whatever. And they'd be like, this is awful. And I'm like, oh, it's great guys. At least we're still the three best friends that anybody could ever have. <laughs> just silly stuff like that. Like just to try to change the mood a little bit. I didn't have any of that anymore. I was, that was not me. I was just super, super salty. I was showing up to work, like just doing the bare minimum essentially. And I actually, I was getting, like I said, the hazing was rough for me and I, and that had never really affected me in the past. I was always able to hold my own pretty well in the firehouse. Like these guys know, I just had a baby. I'm not sleeping good and stuff like that. And it, so at a bigger house, at a dual company house, we got, we had seven or eight guys on each shift. So on, at shift change, there'd be 14, 16 guys in the station at a time, just to remind you all guys that did not know me. And so just. Lots of offhand comments that I'm like, okay, do I respond to this? Because if I do, it could end up in a literal fist fight. Or do I just kind of let stuff go? I'm still super, super new. So I'm trying to like make a good impression and not talk just super hardcore shit to the older guys and stuff. Like trying to find my place. But just immediately, first thing in the morning, just hammer me with questions. A lot of questions, which you damn well know, I'm probably not going to be able to answer because they're just stuff that I haven't learned yet or whatever. And it's in front of just everybody. And and then acting like we're homies when it's just us going over saws and going over different stuff and whatnot. And then as soon as an officer come out or another senior fireman or whatever, just treating me like shit. And I see that. Okay, we're cool for a minute. And then as soon as somebody's out here. You're just going to big league me. And so I've, I've never been that way. And I've also never responded well to things like that either. And so working in the fire service says like, it's very difficult sometimes to find your place. And what is the line, right? For me just saying yes, sir, no, sir. And just eating shit from some guys to, okay, now I'm going to stand up for myself because I'm freaking fed up with this shit. And it did eventually get to that point where. You know, I had made dinner and I had been training all day and just been taking shit all day long. And, and this guy said something about the chicken and I just slammed my fist down on the table and I stand up and I was like, you know what, motherfucker, if you don't want to eat the chicken, then how about you just shut the fuck up and walk away? Because if, if you don't walk away, I'm going to have to. I'm fucking done listening to you talk to me like this. And, and I'm like, that was not how I wanted to handle that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just done, dude. And I had probably slept two hours the night before, worked my ass off all day, putting in my best effort all day long for months for these guys. And it was like, dude, it's, I'm not getting anywhere with these guys. So who cares? I'm done minding my P's and Q's. I'm over this shit. It doesn't matter to these guys. But ironically, the hazing kind of stuff, after that. How, like you and I had talked about, I, my attitude had changed a bunch. And so my, 
these guys were all pretty surprised that, that I had actually lashed out at this dude and told him to leave me alone, essentially. I guess that wasn't a common thing that had happened prior, but I was just done. And so then the next set, I had a, the truck engineer come to me and he's like, hey, man, he's like, that was weird last week at the table. I said, yeah, I, I'm sorry, man. I just, I just can't, I can't deal with that shit anymore. And it's fine if that's how things have gone before, whatever, and other guys have dealt with it. But I, I'm, I, I can't take that shit anymore. I'm fucking done with it. Like, I'm here because I asked to be here. And I, other guys are just sitting back, just collecting their fucking paycheck right now. And I'm not making any more money than those other dudes are. I'm here to try to better myself and better my career. And that's why I asked to come to this house. And, but I can't take getting treated like shit anymore. So you guys aren't going to stand up for me. I'm going to just go back to where I was comfortable and I'm just going to live out the rest of my days at a comfortable station. That'll be nice and slow where I won't have to learn a bunch of new shit, but at least I won't have to fucking deal with that anymore. And he was like, yeah, man, I, I didn't realize that was affecting me so much. I said, okay, cool. And I'm like, we don't got to do feelings, but I'm just letting you know I'm, I'm done with it. So if that shit's not going to stop, I'm not coming back. And he's like, okay. He's, hey, like, how are you doing? I'm fine. And he's like, no, like, really, how are you doing? I'm fine. I just want to be left fuck alone. That's it. I'm, I just want to be left alone. He's like, how's your wife doing? It's all this stuff, like new baby and, what, and whatnot. And it was so weird. Like, I could, I had no problem lying to him about me for whatever reason. It was like that fuck up or shut up mentality that we've always had at the fire service american fire service were tough but when he asked me about my wife i just couldn't lie to him and so that was interesting that's what started this whole thing and yeah he mind ninjaed me a little bit and i now know that he is actually pretty intuitive and i guess for a couple of weeks had been thinking that I had been noticing my attitude had been changing and that I was probably going to snap <laughs> at some point. But like I said, we just didn't know each other. So it's awkward to talk about stuff. I don't know you. You don't know me. We're going to, but we're going to like put our feelings out there and just talk to each other. It's weird, dude. It's just, it's not natural for men specifically. But so that, that was, that kind of, that started the whole thing. So he's like, look, dude, what if we go talk to Bill? That was the truck engineer. Let's go talk to him and, and let's just see if we can maybe get you a couple of weeks off of work or something. Just go home and spend with your family, dude. You obviously need some time. And, uh, and I was so nervous to do that, man. Cause I'm like, once again, now I got to put myself out there to these guys. After I just snapped the week before, like after I just went off like a crazy person the week before, but he was so understanding, like surprisingly understanding. And he got me hooked up through the employee assistance program, the EAP. And he's actually told me, he's like, you need to go home right now. It's no big deal. There's other fire apparatus in the city that can go to calls and someone else will come in. It's not a big deal, dude. I'm like, you know what? This actually made me feel a little better about the whole situation. And just knowing that like next week I'll have my tour off. Like I would like to finish out the shift. He's like, we're not going to train. We're just going to go to calls. That's it, dude. We're just going to go to calls. You know, take a nap, whatever you need to do. So that was incredibly surprising to me. And so that was cool. And then the engine captain was cool about it too. And he was like, yeah, dude, I knew that it seemed like things were rough for you and whatnot. I don't know. We don't know each other. He's like, if you don't come to me and tell me it's, something's wrong, I don't know. And so that was also something that I learned from that as well as even if you think your skipper's a hard ass or the guys around you are total hard asses, if you're not honest with those guys, about what's going on outside of work. They don't know. They're not reading your minds. I guess I just hadn't ever had to do it before. And I'd always 
gotten along with guys pretty well. I'd never had this like headbutting situation at work where I felt like I just had to be prepared for battle when I went to work. It was always like I could hold my own for the first month or so while guys tested me and while we went and drilled and ran calls and then they'd be like, okay, yeah, Robbie's solid. He's cool. We're done talking with him. And that'd be it. And then we were, then we'd be buddies after that. And so that I just am easy to get along with. And I'm not, I'm not trying to stir the pot or I'm not dramatic. I'm good. I'm making those jokes at three o'clock in the morning. So guys were always happy to have me. So I just didn't know what to do. So I think that engineer so much for reaching out and opening that line of communication up. Yeah. The EAP was great. They so, hooked me up with, oh yeah. So you finish off that, that shift and then you take the next tour off. Yeah. So my plan was just, I didn't really have a plan still, but my plan was like, I'll probably take like a tour or so a couple tours off, maybe just to like my own leave maybe. And, and then once I got and I talked to the employee assistance program further and I talked to the truck captain actually too. And he was like, dude, he's, you can, you could file for short-term disability through the city for this. This is absolutely an appropriate time for that. And I'm like, oh. Okay, I just always thought guys that go wakeboarding or dirt biking on the weekends and break their arms or something, they do short-term disability. I'd never even thought about doing it for something like this. And, uh, oh, and I, could, I should talk about a few other symptoms that I had too before I move on. But Yeah, go for uh, it. My, I just wasn't sleeping hardly ever, even with the baby and stuff. Even when the baby would sleep, I wasn't sleeping. And so then the baby be awake and it'd be like my turn to take him and I was just wrecked. And so I was having a hard time sleeping. I could only sleep with the TV on in the living room on the couch. The room was like bright, lights are on. And I just could not get my mind to rest ever. And that's, that had never been an issue for me. I was always a pretty good sleeper. I could wake up a couple of times a night to pee or whatever, like normal people need to do or whatever. And then I just, I'd be fine. I was good. So there was that. And then irritability and like all these things are intermixed, right? If you're not sleeping and your situation's rough and you're having all these outside factors, like, of course, you're going to be in a crappy mood, but it just kept building and building. And then things like, do I remember going, I got force hired at, at another station, right? Which we have so much crap we have to bring in fire during fire season in California. Yeah. Your full wildland set of gear, your full structure gear, and then any other, your other crap. You got to bring all your bedding, toiletries, all that crap. So like getting foresight at another station outside your station sucks. And see, I just, I left some gear and I'm like, dude, in seven years at this point or whatever, I'm like, I never left gear. I've never forgotten that shit. I've always been a checklist guy. And even with my checklist, still left stuff. And so it was just super weird. Like things like that were happening and then basic names of medications. I'm like, okay, I know what it looks like and I can still run this call, but I'm trying to think of the name of the medication and I cannot think of it. And I'm like, I've been doing this job for so long already. This is like second nature. No longer am I in my career, part of my career where I'm thinking about doing stuff when I'm going on medical aids. I'm just doing it. And so that was bizarre Forgetting things that my wife would ask me to do, or at this point I'm doing all the grocery shopping and stuff too, because this, all this COVID lockdown and whatnot. And so like, I just forgetting everything, no short-term memory. It was crap. Just a lot of little things, man, that if you read about post-traumatic stress disorder or injury that we're calling now PTSD, these are all things that are signs and symptoms of 
having either an acute or compounding PTSI or PTSD. Yeah. So there's that. Anyway, I just want to make sure I got that out there because they were, they were such little things, but little by little, they were adding up to one big issue. I was, that's what I was going to say. They're little things yeah. when they're separate from each other, but when they're Correct. combined, they're powerful. Yeah, man. I'm like, oh, frick, man. I just can't sleep. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? And then, okay, now I got such a shitty attitude. I'm like, this is not me. I don't have a shitty attitude. I have a good attitude. I've always had a good attitude. And then I gained a little bit of weight even too during that time. And I've always been pretty slender and in shape and athletic, and, but not gaining muscle. It wasn't muscle, just everything. And when you look back, you, that hindsight is so much better than when you're in it. And that's why I want to get this story out. But like you said, it's just all those little small things. If it was just sleeping or just some short-term memory stuff or just a little bit of attitude adjustment, like you can adjust those things, but all of them together created a pretty big issue for me. And so, yeah, so now I'm back. I did, I'm taking time off. So now that, now the, the advice that was given to me was start with using your sick leave or your vacation or your PTO and then and file for the short-term disability. So I file for short-term disability and they keep asking me for more and more documentation. And so now we're like a couple weeks into this and I haven't, I'm not getting paid, right? To be off work. And I'm like, okay, good thing. we got some savings and I could use, I had some vacation and CTO. Okay. And then we go a little couple more weeks and they finally ask, okay, we need a letter from the position that you're being seen or that you're seeing that states that you have had a bunch of tests and that you for sure have post-traumatic stress disorder and that it's for sure related to the job. Like there was no, just we're assuming that your doctor's not a liar. It was 100%. We want all tons of documentation that was online but in documentation for hours. And this is all while I'm not thinking well and not sleeping well. And it's such a shitty time for them to just be hounding you. It was rough, man. I hate doing computer stuff in the first place. And so to be online all the time for like hours on end was just crazy frustrating. So my doctor, the therapist that the city's employee assistance program set me up with, he wrote me, he did all this testing and whatnot. We did the EMDR and we did tons of stuff. And we can talk about that stuff too. We did all this testing. And he's like, yes, you 100% have classic compounding post-traumatic stress disorder, which is there's acute and then there's compounding, right? So the acute would be like, yeah, I saw this one really terrible thing and it stuck with me and now I'm jacked up. And then the compounding is, yeah, okay, you've been in the fire service for X amount of time and it's different for everyone. That's why I've said X. I don't want to put years on it. For some guys, it's two years and other guys, it's 25. And now you've seen this compilation of things that are, have been in your mind the whole time. You just haven't been dealing with them. And he was like, you are 100% the classic PTSD case. And he was like, this is where we go from here. I'm going to write you the letter. I'm going to put very specific, the specific tests that I ran. They're all from the classic psychology books. This guy is a well-renowned PTSD therapist in, in the Sacramento area and everything. He teaches at conferences, all this stuff. So I'm like, I got a pretty good chance at actually getting this approved. And I, it was radio silence for them for weeks after I, after I gave them all of that documentation they wanted. So I'm like, dude, we're... I guess I just have to go back to work. Like we can't just not have money. So 
I'm still seeing him. I saw him for a couple of months. You know, I went back to work and, and the guys had way laid off of me and realized that I was going to need a little bit of slack. So that was great. And, but it was tough. So then I finally get this email. So impersonal, right? Just so how hard is it to just type up a quick email and send it like, you don't give a shit about me. Clearly it wasn't even a written letter or anything. And it was like, we have denied your claim for post-traumatic stress disorder, and you will be receiving no compensation from your short-term disability. I'm like, wow, I did everything. In one of the hardest times in my life, I did everything that you guys asked me to do. And I thought this was going to, you made it sound like it was a home run, right? Like just check the boxes, do these things. I got all the letters, all the documentation. I gave you medical records. I did all this stuff. And, and I was actually on the, my physician put me on Zoloft even. He said, this might help with some of the mood swings and stuff like that. Maybe help you sleep at night and shut your brain off a little bit. So I'm like, oh, I got this. I'm going to for sure get this money. I pay into this every month. Like, it's, I should definitely get it. And to not get that was a huge blow to us because I'm just like, man, okay. What would we have done if we didn't have any savings? Like the majority of Americans that are living paycheck to paycheck or specifically first responders, guys that are living off their overtime and the guys that have to go on short-term disability for something like this, that now are going to get that overtime taken from them and wages, like those guys are going to go completely bankrupt. So we were just lucky that we had some savings and stuff. And yeah, but you're when, not, you don't get any of that savings back. No, dude, like think about how much it costs the average American a month with, we're talking a mortgage, insurance, car registration, fuel, all that stuff, food, kind of important things for your family to live. And on top of that, we had at the time diapers and formula and all this other stuff. And we were out thousands, thousands of dollars that we had been led to believe that we were going to get back. And that was rough, dude. I'm like, okay, wow. I'm going to have to work how much overtime now? to make that money back in our savings. So that was rough. And then jumping forward a little bit, but this it's the same company that does our short-term disability and our life insurance, unfortunately. And, and a few months later, it came for open enrollment time. And I wanted to just up my life insurance because now we're thinking like, okay, yeah, like, I'm just educating myself more. I've never had a family before this. Okay, yeah, dang, how much would it cost to pay for a house? And then, okay, but during that time, my wife's still gonna need other stuff. So it can't just be enough to pay off the house. It's gotta be enough for X amount of time and all this stuff. Like, dang, okay. Before it was just like, if I die, my wife will get remarried at some point. It'll suck for, for a couple of years. She'll be sad and then she'll move on. But now I got a family. So I'm just like, yeah, I should have my life insurance. So I go to up it and they deny me based on my PTSD. So the same company that said you didn't qualify for disability because you didn't have PTSD. Correct. Denies you for life insurance because you do have PTSD. Correct. So that I was just, I, I was beside myself at that point. I'm like, literally no one cares. Like no one cares about this crap. And it's. There's just such a stigma to it. They were just like, I never said anything about being suicidal because I wasn't. I never said anything about ending my life or any, anything like that. 
So it should have had no, there should have been no issue with upping my life insurance because nothing medically had changed about me at all other than my mental health, but nothing physically had changed. I was still in good shape. I might've gained a few pounds, but who doesn't do that in their thirties? And I didn't like all of a sudden have cancer or some incurable disease, like literally nothing about my life other than that one simple thing had changed and they said it was illegitimate. So now it's what the hell dude? <laughs> so then now I'm left calling them, emailing them. And I had literally got no response other than, yes, I see here it's been denied based on these claims. So that was pretty rough, man. And that just showed me like how little education there is about mental health. And it just made me feel dumb. Like I did all this work. I did all this stuff for you. And I've been working so hard to get back to my normal self for myself and my wife and my kid and the guys around me that are counting on them to be ready to fight fire and go to war every day. And we work in a job that it's not really acceptable to show up to work and not have your head in the game. And that's, it sounds cliche, but really like it's true. And that's why people say it. And so it just sucked, man. It was a huge blow once again to my mental health because I was like, okay, now I'm like confused. This is this huge company. This is all they do. And they're saying I don't have it, but I can't have this other thing. Anyways, crazy. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It only makes yeah. sense in, in when you think about dollars, but it doesn't make right. common sense. That's all I could equate it to was that they didn't want to pay out. No, they definitely didn't. And it just kind of what you think of when you think of insurance companies is they just didn't want to pay out. That's what it came down to was their money was worth more than my well-being, essentially. And I've heard that story time and time again, man. With You go to classes and conferences and stuff. Occasionally, guys will share their stories with you or with a group of guys or whatever. There'll be a setting. And I went to an officer class. And I remember this class because I really liked the officer that was teaching it. I had taken some firefighter survival classes from him before, and I just really liked his mentality and he was just seemed like a guy you wanted to work for those guys were like man it'd be cool to have him as a skipper and so he was teaching this class and i was psyched about it and uh, part of his deal that was completely unrelated to the class the talk it was just firefighting tactics as an officer that's all it was supposed to be but he took a few hours out of one of the days to make this open forum and one of the guys was from a southern california agency who they get a lot of wrecks on their freeway and he was just seeing just time and time again, just these young kids die in street racing wrecks. And it started messing him up and he got, he became an alcoholic and almost lost everything. They were darn near going to fire him and the city would not back him either. And I'm just like, man, I've heard this story before. And that's so fucked up. <laughs> you guys ask us to do all these things, but you really have no idea what our job entails. And then when we tell you what it's, you don't want to hear it. Don't, don't tell me about that. I don't want to know about all these bad things you guys see and do because you, that's what you signed up for. So just deal with it. Yeah. We hear that a lot. You knew what the job was when you signed up for it. Yeah. Clearly I did not. I don't know that any of us really did. Unless you like grew up in the firehouse and those dudes were super honest with you about that shit. Until I saw that dude that had just come out of that room that had been on fire. I did not know what this job was going to be like did not know until that is the point when I realized, okay, that's why they're so hard on us in the fire academies, because you're going to have to make hard decisions and you're going to have to see shit that nobody else even knows exists. Like 
we drive there. Everybody drives by wrecks and stuff all the time. And they never even think twice about it. They're just like, oh, fucking stuff and stuck in traffic again on the 405. That's all it is for most people. And for us, it's all, yeah. I know why there's five fire apparatus and six ambulances at that wreck. It's because it was not a good one. Like we have, we're privy to all this information. So, yeah. Anyways. So with, you mentioned therapy. What, what therapies have you done? So, yeah, that's a great segue into the next portion. So some things that helped me were EMDR. And that's essentially bilateral brain stimulation where you get both sides of your brain to work at the same time, basically. And as you, it's pretty common knowledge where like one part of your brain is more artsy, one part is more science, one part, whatever. And some of us are more left or more. And so with EMDR, it, my buddy, Alex described it great. He said it was probably the best and also the worst thing that I had ever experienced because while doing the EMDR, I, it brought up some stuff that I completely forgot about and had never talked about to anybody, or maybe I talked about at the station after the call happened and then nobody ever talked about it again. It was just done as most of the things we do are. We just go and see these terrible things. And then you go to a lift assist afterwards and the guy's complaining because, you know, whatever, he can't get the right television show on. And you're like, dude, I just saw this guy like drug across the concrete in a car wreck or whatever it is. Like, I just saw this dude riddled with 30 bullet holes and you're mad because your show's not on TV or whatever. And that's been our, that's been our job. So a lot of times we don't get to, we don't even get the time to talk about stuff afterwards. And so there was a lot of things that came up for me in that, in those EMDR sessions that I had always just figured I dealt with but apparently didn't, if that makes sense. Like you're just like, well, so I'm not thinking about it every day and I'm not like waiting to go home to drink myself to blackout or whatever, then I'm probably fine because that's all, that's all I used to think mental health issues were, was like guys that had alcohol problems and drug problems, but it's just so far beyond that. It's something that was super helpful for me. And I would highly recommend if you can go to a therapist who either was a first responder or in the military, whatever would be great because we just think differently than people, other people do. And as we all know, or like the guy that I went to, he was never a first responder or in the military or anything, but he had dedicated like the last 10 years of his life to understanding it. And that was a big thing. I vetted that guy when I went to him and I was like, okay, I want you to tell me why you think you'd be a good therapist for me deal. And so. That was huge for me because he could at least under try to understand these are the things that you see and, and do. Something that I use still it, to bilaterally stimulate my brain is no music, nothing on the way home. And once I leave work, I will put my hands on the steering wheel, both hands, and 10 and 2, just like they taught us in when we were 15. And I will tap my index fingers, alternating them back and forth. And what you do is you just start from the beginning of your shift and you just walk yourself through morning rig checks and your meeting all the way to your first call, the last call to shift change and to the time you get in your truck. And, uh, 
And even if there was nothing crazy that happened, it's not every shift that we see dead babies and terrible things. Like I, I'm not trying to make it sound like that, but it helps me just let go of any of that stuff. And it helps me because when you go home, you're not a fireman anymore. You're just dad. You're just your wife's husband. They like, they respect that you're a fireman. They love it. Hopefully, right? All these things that come about in the fire service and in our home life, they're highly mixed together. There's not a hard line, but it helps me just come home and be dad because I can just go through, okay, where did I learn this shift? What things could I have done better? Okay. Yeah. We went to this fire and I probably could have done this better or that better or whatever. But then if there are things that are truly super, super crappy, it helps me walk myself through those calls too, because whether we did everything right or not, and the outcome was still going to be the same or whether, yeah, we definitely, we did not do everything we should have done on that call or yeah, we did everything a hundred percent. There was nothing we could have done, but it still sucks to have seen it. So I do that a lot. Another thing that's come out of this since then is just communication with my wife. And I know you and I have talked about this a bunch just personally and off the microphone and how when my wife was having all her postpartum depression issues, I was very graceful about her attitude and ev just everything. And I just kept my mouth shut. And if I did not have something positive to say about the situation, or to her, I was just, I chose not to say it. And I was just very graceful to her during that time. And I respected the fact that she was having an issue and that it was not her choosing to be this way. Like none of us want to be fucked up. Nobody wants to have a shitty attitude. Maybe some people do, but for the most part. I was going to say, there's some people them, out there that, right? that seek it. They enjoy it. You got your salty old engineers or whatever that those guys are, maybe they like having a shitty attitude, but for the most part, most of us want to be happy and love our families and just come home and be dad and whatnot, go camping and just be freaking normal. None of us like want to have an alcohol addiction and, <laughs> and not sleep for days on end and stuff. But so that was huge for me, dude, like being graceful to my wife, because little did I know not very long later, I was going to need the same grace given back to me. And I attribute the, just that alone, just us simply being kind to each other when we didn't have to be kind to each other, that saved our marriage. A hundred percent, hands down. Yeah. What? And that's, I still get a little choked up even talking about it because I just know so many guys have not the story. Yeah. There's definitely all kinds of stories out there for that. <laughs> One of, one of the things I want to go back to is you may mention of we're not seeing terrible shit every shift, but that it's everything that's on top of it. It's the terrible sleep. It's the, I think you and I talked about it the first time. It's the regular customers, those frequent flyers that we see constantly. <laughs> and they start, to, while they're simple calls, they just start to add up because you just don't want to it keep does. going out for the same guy sitting in the same spot in the same street. Yeah. But Absolutely. going back to the sleep part, that the sleep, the terrible sleep makes it even worse because even if it's, even if you don't have any marked or remarkable calls or anything, those mm -hmm. calls that you do have and the memories you create don't get filed away correctly because you're coming back at one thirty in the morning, you're going to sleep and then you're getting right back up at two thirty, 
and you can't sure. you can't get into that REM sleep where you where that's the healthy sleep to get everything categorized or cataloged properly. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you brought that up, man, because actually. I believe it was Sacramento Fire Department and maybe San Francisco as well did some sleep studies on their guys, specifically on their medics. And Sacramento Fire Department is consistently one of the top like 50 busiest fire departments in the entire country. And they're certainly a big metropolitan area. And man, if you work on one of their medics, you are simply just not going to sleep. And they brought in National Sleep Society to do the study. So it was a total third party, unbiased type of deal. It wasn't the fire department trying to shut down the guys and say, we don't care if you sleep or not. It was actually seemed to be a legitimate study. And, and they came to find that if you're not getting four deep sleep, so REM sleep hours a night, those compound into essentially being intoxicated. So not only are we trying to go to calls and deal with this just stupid shit all the time, but when you do actually get something that's super, super critical, like you said, like your mindset is wrong. And so it, we might as well be drinking beers and trying to deal with stuff sometimes if you've legitimately been up for 30 hours straight. And then it's the same when you go home. Like your kids expect you to just be dad when you go home. They don't know that, and they don't, kids don't have the mental capacity to even fully understand dude i have to sleep i can't you come home and they're awake they're excited daddy's home blah 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 blah, blah. and you're just like yeah screw you i'm going to bed that's what it's to them if you just skip family time and go straight to bed or whatever what, and one, all, the, one of the things about sleep that's bugged me lately is the fact that we talk about how bad the sleep is how bad our schedules are and, and that is part of the job obviously the schedule and the sleep just, sure. it's, it's hard to get around either one of those things with what we do but when they did the sleep study there, or the, those two sleep studies, do you have any idea what they, how they did research for your life out of work? Because one of the things we don't do well as firefighters is take care of ourselves off of the job. Absolutely. And so we don't eat, we drink a lot. We fuck up our sleep outside of work. And so it just compounds the effects of work. Yeah. I don't know that they did anything off duty. One thing I do know, and I don't know if I don't know if they have continued with it or not, just to be honest. And I'm not bashing those dudes one way or another, but I know that they did start to rolling brown out their medics. So they knew in the CAD that this, that these eight medic units were up all night long with less than four hours of sleep between calls. And that's just four hours between calls. So it doesn't really get your deep sleep still because you got to come back from call. You got to restock your rig. Then you got to wash up. Then you go to bed. Then you start to sleep. Then you get into a REM sleep. So you're maybe getting two hours of deep sleep, but at least they were, it was an attempt. And like you said, it's hard to get around while you're on duty to get sleep. So you're, we're, we, it is part of the job, but they started to say, okay, medic one, you guys were up for with no time in between your calls. So we're going to give you four hours where you are out of service. Uh, and mm. then roll the medic two. Okay. Hey, at, and it wasn't necessarily going to be at nighttime because we're still busy at night. That's, we don't, that's the whole deal, but it'd be like, Hey, at noon, when you guys would normally try to eat lunch or whatever, like, we're just going to put you out of service for four hours. So does that put a little more stress on some of the other units? Yeah, of course. But like one, one medic unit in a huge, in a big metropolitan city is a drop in the hat. And, and then they'd go, okay, medic five, you guys were, you guys would be out of service from Florida, whatever, and so on and so forth. And so I know they at least made an attempt to ease that for those guys a little bit, but 
that's not like the only solution that I, I could see to even getting sleep at work, unless you're just working at a slow station in the outskirts of the city or something. It's just not going to happen. But like you said, we just don't deal with our own life at all. And, and that was something I'd never even really thought about. Like I was always, I thought so at least able to deal with work and home and keep them relatively separate, but they're just not separate when it comes to sleep. It's okay. If you're going to be up all night at, at work, then I need to not also go to the club or be out drinking with the boys until three o'clock in the morning, the day after we get off shift either. And like you said, drinking too much is a huge issue. And that leads to interrupted circadian rhythms and all these other things. And we now know that guys in after a 30 year career, which is your average career in the fire service, right? If you do a full 30 years in the service, those guys that spent a lot of time up at night are now getting things like heart disease. They're now getting post or compounding post-traumatic stress disorder 30 years later. Like we're talking guys that always had the fire service in their blood and never seemingly had an issue. And as soon as they retire, they're just wrecked all at once. Oh, now I'm like, I got nothing. What do I do now? And, and we're seeing that so much now, so much. That's, man, if we could get ahead of this stuff somehow, wouldn't that be nice? Like you were talking about with your, your, your probie or you're the junior guy you guys have at your station and you guys just open a dialogue with him and he's like, huh, I think I need to get a therapist. And you guys kind of laugh. Yeah. It's funny. It's a funny thing to say, but you're like. Yeah. We, and we laughed just because it took us back and then we definitely right. encouraged it because his point was, I just right. want to get ahead of it. Exactly. You're like, shit, I wish I had somebody when I was your age to tell me to do the same thing. And it's a real thing. Like we actually could be saving mental health, just like everybody, you go to the, you go to your doctor once a year for a checkup and they do your blood panels and you pee in a cup and you, whatever we do all these things because we get exposed to carcinogens and whatever else. Why are we not doing a mental health checkup too? Like how great would it be if the fire department or the city provided that for us well, just once a year? And then maybe that's enough to change one guy's life. It would have changed mine if I was having my mental health crisis and we would have gone and done this physical and I would have sat down with a shrink and been fairly honest because you always have the option to lie, of course. Yeah, of but course. you have this unbiased person that's just here to listen to you. And if we had the option to talk to somebody for free and then not be afraid that we were going to a lose our jobs or lose out on overtime or whatever, all these other things that are reasons that guys are not talking about it or have just our people that we call our friends talk shit about us because of it. If we're opening up a dialogue now, like you and I are, and like you already have with the junior guys at your station and like I have with the guys, if we're already talking about it, then it's easier to handle. It's easier to deal with when it happens. It's also easier to recognize because you'd be like, yo, Mike, remember that thing that we've talked about before? Like, and I just want to let you know, bro, because I love you. You're exhibiting a lot of those signs and symptoms right now. And then we're not getting to the point where we're like having interventions for our buddies that are like beating their wives and trying to commit suicide. I think part yeah. of what you said there is key. And it's, I've talked about it for a while now is knowing your crew. Yeah. And recognizing when changes happen. Absolutely. And then having the, basically the guts to stand up and say, wait, I'm noticing this. Let's talk. Yeah. Or if it's uh, bad enough to go into somebody and say, Hey, we need to pull so-and-so aside. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that 
is not, I don't want to put that on the officers, but that is something like I had that officer talk to us about in our officers class. And he was like, Hey, you guys want to be the boss now? Is that right? Everybody just looks at each other. Yes. That's why we're here. And he's okay. So this is going to be part of your job then is to recognize when someone on your crew is not okay. I, you and I talked about my cousin's also a fireman and I love that guy so much. He's been like a little brother to me and I got him into the fire service. And so I feel like responsible to make sure I'm looking out for him. And, uh, and so we have a very open dialogue and I've been super, super transparent with him about my issues. And, and he was there for it. He knows, he remembers, but we've all got dudes that we know that are on this, in this kind of gray area where we know their cup is full. We know that they're having trouble at home. We know that their kids are having issues. They're having issues with their wives. They're having issues with whatever, man, money issues, whatever. I've got a guy with me that I work with right now that everyone knows is an alcoholic, but no one's doing anything about it, including myself, because I don't have a relationship with him. I just know who he is. And that's huge is having relationship with each other. Because if you're just some random dude and you walk up and you go, Hey, quit drinking alcohol. You're doing it too much. And I'm just going to go tell you to screw yourself oh, because yeah. you don't know shit about me. There's some familiarity and some tact that, that needs to be utilized Absolutely. in those situations. A Absolutely. But my cousin, he called me a while back and goes, Hey, I don't know if you dude, but we just had one of our guys kill himself out back of the fire station in the fucking parking lot. I'm like, Whoa, that's who was it? Luck. I don't want to say luckily it was in a non-public safety personnel that was a member of the fire department, but not a fireman. But I said, wow, okay. Who did you guys think it was? Just my ninja, I'm a little red. It's a loaded question. And he tells me, and I was like, that's not cool that you have somebody in mind that it could have been. And just, I wasn't being a dick about it. I was trying to be cool about it and being like, that's, I'm making a point. And he was like, yeah, you're right. And when he had talked to some of the other dudes, they had thought it was the same guy. And uh, so I said, this is your opportunity right now for whoever, the guys that are closest with him need to do something about that. Like no longer, this is your wake up call for your whole agency, for everybody in the greater Sacramento area to go, whoa, this is real. We need to address these situations, right? And he's not the first guy, unfortunately, in our area that has taken his own life. And I know your agency in your area has had similar issues and similar wake-up calls. And I just don't want it to be something that happens. And then we just move on like it did. And I guess that's why I'm talking to you right now is because I personally know three guys that have taken their own lives, two that I actually really knew pretty well, but had no idea anything was wrong. And then another guy that I had just met through other firemen and stuff. And, but and that's why I want people to know the signs and symptoms, all these things like, dude, we can't let it just keep happening. And, and sure as hell, if we were having this money guys diet in structure fires every year that we're having that are taking their own lives, we would be do something, doing something about it.
And we're, we do a lot of firefighter survival. We do a lot of reading the smoke and building construction and all these things that we learn, which are super crucial to literally staying alive in our job. But I think we're just going to have to start to do a better job at recognizing who is having an issue and what we can do about it. And that starts with just talking about it. So what's it look like today for you? Right now, I'm actually not a full-time firefighter right now. When we moved, we moved 2,000 miles away and I had multiple fire offers and I am super grateful for those agencies that picked me up. Just there was two agencies that picked me up and essentially we just haven't been able to make the schedule work right now because I wasn't going to be able to make enough money at those jobs for my wife to not work. And so I took a paramedic job at one of the trauma centers and, and so I'm working at the trauma center and definitely not seeing less terrible things than I did when I was a firefighter. We're seeing like, shoot, yesterday, I think we had like at least six level one traumas. There were time, there was a time where for probably two hours, I went from trauma room, pulled my gown and stuff off that was all bloody and put another one on and went into another trauma room to receive another trauma patient. It's a different setting that I'm in, but still with a similar mindset of, okay, I'm still going to have to do some critical incident stress debriefing on my own and some of that bilateral st brain stimulation and everything that I had to do as a fireman, I'm still having to do now working at the hospital for sure. And are you seeing anybody, any therapist right now, or is it just your, the own thing you're doing? I'm not. However, like you and I have talked about, I've had a lot going on and, and there has been a bit of a shift in my attitude and my demeanor and my, but like I said, that dialogue that I've had with my wife and that like grace and honesty that we have just promised each other we would do, uh, she's been very graceful to me and also very honest at the same time. And so she's like, Hey, like, what do you think about going and maybe talking to somebody again? Like maybe we do that before you end up needing to go back on Zoloft. Yeah. That'd be a great idea. Let's do that. Or before you sleeping becomes an issue again, or before you start having nightmares again, waking up in sweats and with your sheets and stuff, just totally soaked in sweat. Like maybe we get ahead of it this time. So it's funny in a way, because I'm saying, let's do this for the fire service and for each other, but it's still difficult to do for myself. So yeah, I came a really long way from where I was a couple of years ago, but I think that I'm maybe always going to deal with this to some extent. And I'm just going to have to, now that I know what it is, I'm going to have to keep an eye on it. And I'm okay with that. It sucks that like, that's what I've gotten from the job, but I'm not the only one and it's hard to just put it out there, but I want it out there because if it's not out there, then more guys are just going to keep taking their lives and not, nobody's going to know why. And that's just messed up, dude. I, I want people to know that this, that post-traumatic stress disorder is real. And it's not just because I saw one dead baby one time or one person on fire one time or whatever it was. It's like you said, the sleep and the hazing and the attitudes and, and just the constant up, down, up, down, 
you get your epinephrine dump when the tones go off and then you have to deal with that and get your shit together and get your mind because you have to go deal with a very tense situation oftentimes. And so there's just so much that goes into it that, like you said, one little thing, no big deal, but all of it together over the last 10 years of my career has made an impact on my life. So you're just going to have to just keep an eye on it. I'm going to have to keep an eye on it for sure. All right, let's get to the last two questions. Yeah. All right, an everyday carry, because we call this show the things we all carry. Something mm -hmm. in your everyday life you carry and you feel naked if you don't have it. I do carry a firearm every day, which is great because in the state of Tennessee, that's legal. But something that I carry like as a reminder and whatnot, I've always got my cell phone on me. And so I, I have this picture of my wife and son and I. And it was just a day that we were super happy. We had fun all day long. One of the days that you're like, I remember that day. Like I remember everything about that day. And so when I am having those tough days and stuff, I can just easily see that. And it's a very good reminder. Like, this is what I'm here for. This is what I'm doing. And this is why I need to not go back to that place. And what about a book? So probably my favorite book report from engine company 82 which was written by dennis smith he's fdny great one of the greats out of fdny and he authored so many other books and magazines and everything and and he goes into a lot of fire service tradition he also goes into a lot of tradition that has stunted us as well as the american fire service such as some of that bravado where he says we need the bravado right this is a manly job like you need to <laughs> Be tough to go into burning buildings. You need to be tough to throw chainsaws and ladders around and pull hose. And it's a hard job at times, right? Like physically tough. So we got to have some of that. But we also have to learn when to recognize there's these other things that are not. The bravado is, has not done well for us. And so I liked that a lot. That was like one of the first times I'd ever even heard anybody talk about that, about how the bravado was not a good thing, the manliness. And then I really liked listening to Jocko as well. And he was a Navy SEAL and that guy had a, he did not have a, the most successful career as a SEAL. He had a great career as a SEAL. But he had a lot of things go poorly as well. And that's definitely where he learned. And so to listen to him talk about also his TTSD from the things that did not go right and the things that he saw was huge. You can even listen to it on audio. You can listen to both of those on audio if you're not a reader. And certainly veterans deal with very similar issues and have very similar signs and symptoms that we all have. And, and those guys have had some heavy issues to deal with, but they were willing to talk about it before a lot of other guys were willing to talk about it. I will, I'll link to both of those in the show notes. And I think that's a Ooh. good spot to end. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. I appreciate Absolutely. you. I appreciate you sitting down and spending some time. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. And I can I throw one more thing. Yeah, in? go for it. So something that we now know about like suicide and whatnot, that, that we all society sees it as selfish, right? How can they do that? How could they think that's the right thing and whatnot? And, but now we know from people that have survived those incidents that they typically truly believed that taking their own life was going to make things easier for the others around them and certainly would make their pain stop. So many have said, once you start to deal with these issues, you realize that's not 
going to actually be the case. And I just want to make sure that I said that to anybody who's maybe even considering that it's not the case. It is not going to make the pain go away for everyone else around you is not going to make the pain go away. That pain is going to last for a long time for those around you. And, and maybe that's a selfish thing to say, but it's not easier to deal with our situation, but it certainly is the better option. I think that's, that's a good ending right there. I appreciate those words. Yeah. Thanks brother. I appreciate you having me. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. So go ahead and enjoy the rest of your afternoon and we'll talk again. You as well. All right, man. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of the things we all carry. Head over to the website, the things we all for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.